Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, we thank you for the truths we've already been reminded of, to hear about your faithfulness, to even not just sing it, but hear it recounted through Dixon. And just thank you for putting those kind displays of your glory out in front of us this evening. Help us to hear what your word says, that not just what you wrote through Paul to the Ephesians, but what you're saying to us even tonight. Help us to hear these words, to love Christ, that we would love one another and and think rightly and deeply about the truth that we see before us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In almost every area of your life, one of the most prized things in every relationship is the issue of unity. You can see from your handout that tonight we're talking about maintaining unity. After reading Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, you see where we get that from. And I want you to think just for a second on the disruptive and destructive nature that disunity can bring. One of the easiest ways to show it is just in the area of sports. I remember watching a Georgia football game, and it was against LSU, this is several years ago, and we scored with seconds left to take the lead, I think by two, maybe it was one, and the guy who scored wanted to make sure everyone knew he scored, and so in selfishness, he starts to celebrate a little bit excessively, at least according to the referee, and so they threw a flag on him, which meant the kickoff was pushed back, which meant The other team was getting the ball back further down the field to which they took advantage of, kicked the field goal, and beat Georgia. So you see just in that moment where one guy's selfishness, one guy's not thinking of others was destructive and just a silly sports analogy. Um, To keep with that theme, I remember in high school, two of our running backs were not getting along. And I'm not saying this is how you should have handled it, but our coach got so fed up with it. That was so destructive to our team that he made them run the rest of practice holding hands around the track. Um, So I'm not saying that was the best way to handle it, but I remember it uh, so many years later. Again, in sports, in business, in your home, when siblings are at each other's throats, when mom and dad are upset with each other, all of these are crucial moments where you're going to decide if you're going to continue down these destructive paths or if you're going to give effort and thought to how to maintain unity. If you're going to pursue the disunity that so easily entangles us and continue to destroy the things that out of the other side of your mouth you're saying you love. Again, as you see these kind of examples, if you think through them in your own life, you know that unity is something that is good and to be pursued. But again, I want to ask you, um, what is it that makes unity so hard? We could go man to man tonight and everyone would say unity is good, but what makes it so hard to grasp? Why are we so prone to disunity? 
not just in politics and sports and families and things like that, but especially in the local church. Even in this church, Flint Hills Bible Church, I love Flint Hills. I'm assuming you guys are like us and you have to fight for unity. It's not something that comes easily or naturally. It's something that you pursue. And so this evening, I want to look at Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, not only addressing the need of unity, but especially your role. And again, I'm making the distinction, not just y'all's role, but yours, you. Again, if we went head for head in here and asked everyone, I would assume you would love to see Flint Hills be the most unified church that you can imagine. But oftentimes that means coming to unity through my ideas and my agenda. And if our church isn't going to get on my ideas, whether I'm just a member or a deacon or a pastor, if my agenda is not the one driving us to unity, then I'm going to fight and make sure that my way gets pushed above everyone else's. That's how easy it is to grow in disunity. And so as we walk through the passage tonight, I want to notice not just where unity comes from, not just how we have it as a church, but how we maintain it is especially the focus here. Afterwards, Lord willing, you'll see how you can best promote unity here at Flint Hills. We're going to look at Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. I've got three simple points for you. You're going to see first the walk of unity, then we'll move to the way of unity, and we'll end with the why of unity. So Paul begins in verse 1 with the walk of unity, and he starts off with that word, therefore, showing you that he's bringing his argument to its logical conclusion. Paul has been saying something, and he's saying because of that, therefore, and then we'll get into our text. The therefore is showing you the logical conclusion of chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. If you've ever done any sort of study on the book of Ephesians, you know it's one of the easiest books to divide in half. You have Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, where there's literally only one command, and it's the command to remember. That's in chapter 2, verse 11. Outside of that, there are no commands in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And then in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, there's over 40 commands. So it's very easy to divide the book that way. And Paul says, therefore, here, showing you that if Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is the dirt that you've put in your pot, then 4, 5, and 6 ought to be what grows out of it. One pastor said, if, if 1, 2, and 3 could put shoes on, it would look like 4, 5, and 6. And seeing this word, therefore, seeing the hinge, the switch that Paul makes, is going to help you deal with at least two extremes. In our churches, you're going to have people that are prone to one of these. One extreme is the crowd that says, well, doctrine doesn't matter. Just tell me what to do. I want series on how to be a better parent. I want series on how to budget better. I want series on how to quit cussing. I want series on how to quit uh, getting drunk. I just want to know how to do certain things. Don't bother me with all that doctrinal stuff. Paul's word for therefore here reminds you that Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is there for a reason. Paul didn't begin Ephesians with chapter 4, verse 1. He doesn't get to chapter 4, verse 1 until he finishes 1, 2, and 3. Again, there are people who don't want to dive deep and study. They don't want their intellect challenged or increased. They, they want to just get to the practical nature of things. And Ephesians reminds you, you've got to get through 1, 2, and 3 to even get to that practical stuff. That's one extreme. The other extreme is for the people who say doctrine is all that matters. And I'll remind you that Ephesians is six chapters, not three. 
Paul wrote Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, and then he says, therefore, and he doesn't say, therefore, rest. Therefore, just take it easy. Paul expects a different reaction to 1, 2, and 3 than, well, that's cool. Paul says, therefore, and he enters into three chapters where he's going to give you over 40 imperatives, 40 commands. So the first extreme says doctrine doesn't matter, and you need to realize that Ephesians starts with 1, 2, and 3, not 4. And the other extreme says doctrine is all that matters, and you need to realize that chapter 3 is not the end, 4, 5, and 6 are there. And so Paul says, therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I'm urging you to walk in a worthy way. Paul has saying, follow what I've been doing. I've been walking in the worthy way, and it's wound me up in prison, and I'm still telling you it's worth it. Paul is in prison because he has been walking in accordance with what 1, 2, and 3 produces. In fact, it was an Ephesian Gentile that helped land Paul in prison. If you remember the story from Acts where they thought that Paul took that Ephesian Gentile into the holy place where Gentiles weren't allowed. And it was that accusation that ended up getting Paul arrested. And so as someone who has walked this way and is suffering for it, he still, while suffering for it, says, walk this way. Paul tells them to walk in a worthy way. Again, look at verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, obviously, when Paul says, walk in a worthy manner, he's not saying, go earn what God's given you. I say obviously because in chapter 2, he's already made it clear that we are saved by grace through faith. Paul doesn't forget he wrote that, and then in chapter 4 say, God saved you, now go show how smart he was to do that. In other words, when Paul says, walk in a worthy way, he's not saying, walk in a way that shows you deserve God's grace. The word for worthy here, you could picture it as scales being balanced. Worthy would be a balanced scale. So if you put one, two, and three on the scale, the theology that's there, four, five, and six bring that in balance. That's what he's saying to walk in a worthy way. If you're saying you believe one, two, and three, then we all just start seeing four, five, and six. That's the worthy way. It's a consistent way. It's a balanced way. One author wrote that Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is how God sees you in Christ. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 is how the world sees Christ in you. I thought that was a helpful way to show the the difference. Again, just to be clear, you will never, have never, deserve salvation. You don't live good enough to get saved, and you don't live good enough to stay saved. It has never been and will never be because of what you're doing, ultimately, that you are not the one meriting your salvation. All that you are in Christ, you are by grace, and that includes before you're saved, being saved, and even glorified in the future. And so when Paul says, walk in a worthy way, he's not contradicting that. His point is, if one, two, and three are what's true of you, then four, five, and six is going to be what's born from that life, what's being produced from that life. Again, look back at chapter 2, and I'll show you a little bit more of this. Chapter 2, verse 1. Paul mentions in chapter 4, your walk. It's not the first time he's mentioned how you walk. The idea is your walk is your way of life. It's the way you walk around. Chapter 2, verse 1. Notice how sinners 
outside of Christ's walk. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's saying your lifestyle before Christ was one that was, um, you were uh, in the flesh, you were of the devil and of the world. Then look at verse 10. After getting saved, he says, For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So chapter 2, verses 1 and 3 shows the way you did walk. Verse 10 shows the way you walk now as a believer. And so you ask, well, what happened in between that made that change? Look back at verse 4. But God... Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here's the change, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. The reason that you went from walking this way to walking that way is because God gave you life. He, he made you come alive. This is what Paul refers to in Ephesians 4.1 of the manner of calling that you have. The way that Paul uses the word calling is most often what we uh, often call the, the word born again or regeneration. He raised you from the dead. Again, just pause for a second and personalize that. We heard Dixon do that earlier. But think about it. If you're a Christian, you individually, you personally, you were dead. That includes Dixon, like we heard, my father-in-law, as great as he is, he was a dead sinner at one point. The pastor you love so much, Dave, is a, he was a dead sinner. And at some point in time, God, out of his grace, gave them life. And that's true of every single one of us who are Christians. God not just gave Christians life, he gave you life, you. It's not a generic calling that is sometimes referenced in Scripture, that is there. Um, this is not the call that goes out to dinner and whoever comes to the table comes and other people don't come. Or RSVP for a wedding, you know not everyone's going to say yes. This calling here is one that is specifically referencing when God made you alive in Christ. And Paul's saying for those who have received this call, there is a consistent way to walk with that. There's a response to that that's more than appreciation. And so it is the walk of unity that we see in verse 1. Go back to chapter 4, look at verses 2 and 3, and we'll see the way of unity. If you're going to walk this way, you've got to ask, well, what is that way? And the way of unity is laid out in verses 2 and 3. And Paul begins with, he says, with all humility. To walk in a worthy way starts off with walking with all humility. In that culture, and not too different from ours, humility was one of the last things people wanted to pursue. The people of their day, a lot like ours, thought that humility would be something that, that has to be avoided. They pursued things like Paul lists in Philippians 2.3. Just listen. Philippians 2.3, Paul tells you what the opposite of humility is. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So you can learn a lot there. In humility count others more significant. Well, pride would be me counting myself as more significant. Pride would be me doing things in selfish ambition and conceit. Pride would be me pushing myself and my agenda 
at the cost of other people. In verse 4 of Philippians 2, Paul adds that humility is also the opposite of looking to your own needs. Because he says, don't look to your own needs only, but to those of other people. Again, to promote unity in the Philippian church, Paul tied the example of humility to the best example there is to Christ. That deep section of, of Christ that goes from eternity past through the incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection to eternity future, that passage that is so deep about Christ is there so the Philippians would grow in humility. And so Paul gives them that example in Philippians and he talks about that humility here in Ephesians 4. And that is why humility has been and will always be a key Christian virtue because our Lord is the king of humility. We value what the world rejects because we love the Savior that the world rejects. And how could we not walk in humility? I hate to keep referencing Dixon, but that was a great job. How do you reflect on a testimony like that? I'm assuming your experience was, man, I'm so prideful. I look back at what the Lord's done on me. I don't deserve any of this. And if you would reflect on, and just collectively, if we would reflect on our own testimonies, it would rightly humble us the way that Paul's talking about here. He talks about you were called, and the person who understands that God gave them life when they were dead, the first thing that we're seeing in Ephesians 4 is you walk with all humility. Again, lack in humility is possibly what keeps you from growing in Christ more than you are. Again, do you struggle with humility? If you say no, I would say yes, you do. <laughs> if you say yes, I go, obviously, you struggle with humility. And, and one of the ties here is you're walking in humility as one who's been called. Reflect on God's calling on your life. Reflect, and I don't mean calling to do certain things as a Christian. That's not the way the word is being used here. I mean you're calling to be a Christian. Reflect on that if you're struggling with your humility. Let those, the, let those truths sink in. Just reflect on Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. In calling you to life, God gave life to a dead sinner. He purchased you with his son's blood. He made you an inheritance and gave you an inheritance. Even after doing all of this, you still sin against him and he promises never to abandon you. There's no way that we can think on that in any amount of sobriety and be anything but humbled. And so Paul says, in view of your calling, walk Notice he says, with all humility. Some of us think we're doing pretty good because we walk with some humility. Um, some of us attempt to walk with minimum humility, enough to think, let people think I'm humble. Paul says, walk with all humility. Again, it could be that you find yourself in your local church having your agenda to push, and it's just not the same as the Lord's. It's not the same as your church's, and so pride creeps in and causes you to be willing to sin to make sure your agenda gets pushed across. Pride is what causes you to violate not just the first great commandment, but the second one that's like it. Your pride and lack of humility causes you to not love God and therefore not love your neighbor, instead to love yourself. And this love of self that causes us to violate both those things, even neighbors in our local church and even the Lord of our local church. 
Humility is what you need in that situation and in every situation in the Christian life. And so my suggestion is, first and foremost, pray, God, please humble me. On top of that, reflect on your calling. Go back to Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 and personalize it. Not meaning make the Bible about you. That's not my point. But when he says that you've been saved by grace, realize that means I've been saved by grace. Not just Christians have been saved by grace. But ask for God to humble you. Give thought to the calling that you have. And then pray that God will have those get their intended effect in your life. The way of humility begins with, I'm sorry, the way of unity begins with walking in humility, with all humility. In verse 2, he also says all gentleness as well. Gentleness um, is not like our, our world would think or our flesh tends to think, that gentleness is like a doormat. Um, gentleness is the idea of having power under control. In secular Greek, they would use that word for gentle um, with the idea of taming a wild animal. Uh, a, a doctor would use it um, for when they were more gentle with a kid than they could have been. You think about if you've ever taken a kid to the doctor, there's ways the doctor could just not care and just do what needs to be done. Or if he's a better doctor, he's as gentle as he can be, as tender as he can be. So what he could do is, what, is not what he does do. That's the idea of, of being gentle. One of the ways that I can illustrate it for you is my kids love to wrestle me. I haven't figured out yet why because I'm undefeated. But they keep coming back. I mean, it's just no contest. And um, this has led to my two-year-old girl also loving to wrestle with me. Now, again, this has not happened. This is an illustration. But to help you understand what being gentle means, imagine if she said, less wrestle, and I said, bring it on. And I grab her by her legs, toss her across the room. I go over there, and I belly flop on her. I mean, just imagine if I just went all out. You go, well, you can do that. I would suggest not doing that, right? That's not good for her. It's not going to be for good, good for you being in jail. It's not good for your marriage. In no way, shape, or form is what you could do good for anyone. The weirder the illustrations, the more they stick. Have you ever noticed that? Um, I hope you'll never forget that. Me belly flopping on a two-year-old girl. That's the way that I want you to think about gentleness, the amount of force you could put is not the amount of force you put. The toughness you could approach this person with is not the toughness with which you approach them. Think of Galatians 6.1 where Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. When you have a brother who has sinned, Paul tells you to go to them, but be careful to use only the force that's necessary. Like humility, we also have a perfect illustration of gentleness in Christ. I mean, just consider for a second, when you read the Gospels, the fact that he was sinned against so much and never zapped anybody. I mean, he had disciples saying, let's call fire down. And he says, no. Now, could he? Yeah. I mean, he talked about things he could do. I could call legions of angels and I could do this and that, but he didn't. I think about, especially when I think of my kids, I think about how often Jesus repeated himself and never let them know he was having to repeat himself. I mean, think of how gentle he was and just all the little ways that we are so prone to get aggravated and short-sighted with people. 
You think about just the passion of Christ, his suffering. Think of all the ways that he suffered and never once did he respond like he could have. We watch them doing that to him and we go, do you guys know who you're messing with? And never once does Jesus respond like he could have to them. That is gentleness. And again, I want you to think through, Paul's intention here is to apply this to your local church. Think through yourself and your local church here and ask yourself, have I been as gentle with the fellow members of Flint Hills Bible Church as Jesus has been with me? Again, do you struggle with that? Go back and think about your calling. Did God respond to you the way he could have? Or did he respond with gentleness? So again, push forward. Not just to walk with some gentleness, not just to walk with minimum gentleness, but with all gentleness. Give thought to the ways and times that you've been more harsh with people than you needed to be. And beg God, please change this part of me from the inside out. Consider the gentleness of Christ, not just in general, but towards you. Lord, I I am thankful that you did that to save me, but I also want to follow that example. So the way of unity is walking in humility and gentleness, but Paul also says it's with patience. Again, the easiest way I can picture this for you, the one that stuck with me is the idea of patience is the idea of a a long fuse. It was about five years ago. Some of y'all will know the guy from our church. I won't mention him since I think it's on Facebook, so I won't mention his name. But it was about five years ago, it was 4th of July. He loved to have people over to his house and fireworks. Well, he, he had one of those giant uh, pieces of firework that comes with the little stubby fuse that you're supposed to add a fuse to, but he didn't get the memo. And so he's standing over it and lights it, and it immediately blows up in his face. The problem wasn't he lit it. The problem was the fuse wasn't long enough. That's the way that I I see this idea of patience. The problem is not the people around you that are little sparklers and light you on fire. That's not the problem. The problem is your fuse was so short you blew up. And Paul's saying that if you want to walk in a worthy way with unity, you're going to have to take that fuse and it's your job to lengthen it. Because as long as you are around unglorified saints, I promise you, your fuse is going to get lit. That's one guarantee I can make you at a local church. Your fuse will get lit, but if you blow up, Paul puts that on you. Jesus puts that on you. That's a helpful way to to picture the idea of patience. Patience is not avoiding people. Patience, at least in, in my understanding, it implies you had the opportunity to blow up and didn't. So if no one's around me, I'm not really being patient with anyone. It's when someone is lighting me up or pushing my buttons, whatever phrase it is we use. It's when someone is doing that and I don't blow up that I'm actually being patient. Again, the idea of being patient implies the opportunity is there to be impatient. And you didn't take it. God loves to use, again, just to stick with the illustration, it's silly, I guess, but God loves to use those other sparklers in the church (laughs) and go, go light that one on fire. Let's see how long it takes them to blow up. God loves to do that because it reveals to you, I'm not there yet. It reveals to you how unlike Christ you are. Again, it's so easy for us to say, well, it's their fault. It's not their fault. It's yours for having such a short fuse. 
Again, like with humility and gentleness, my suggestion to you is God, pray, uh, pray to God, God, help me. Um, I, I have nowhere to go but around unglorified saints. That's the only people I can go be with. Help me to lengthen my fuse so that when they do what they do best, when they light other people on fire, I have a long fuse and I'm not blowing up at anybody. Lord, make me more Christ-like so that I'm walking with all humility, all gentleness, and with patience. But look at verse 2, and there's one more. He says, and bearing with one another in love. Uh, To put it bluntly, it's put up with each other is the idea that Paul's getting at. That's not a refined. That would be the Josh Mills translation, I guess. But he's saying put up with each other. That is what he's saying. It's you refusing to be done with people who have given you so many reasons to be done with them. People who have given you reason after reason after reason to quit on them. This means you bear with them and continue with them even though they're not deserving it. You love people in a way that they have not earned. You stay committed to them longer than they deserve. But it's not this cold, lifeless, forced bearing with them. He says bear with them. Notice he says in love. You're not bearing with people if you hope they just die first. You're not bearing with people as long as they'll just sit on that side and I'll go sit on this side. That's not bearing with one another in love. Surviving a relationship is not bearing with one another in love. Again, if you're bearing with someone like this, you are displaying what Christ has done with every single one of us. I mean, again, consider just your whole existence. From conception, you were a sinner. Your whole existence was more than enough reason for God to abandon you. Instead, he was patient with you while you were an unbeliever. He came to you and saved you. And as I said earlier, consider just as a Christian, you can't even calculate how many times you've sinned against him. And yet Jesus still says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I think about the Gospels where one of the most moving parts for me, spending four years in Matthew, Jesus tells Peter and the disciples how they're going to scatter and abandon him at his worst moment. I mean, Jesus is battered and, and bruised and he's bleeding. And Peter locks eyes with him as he abandons him. And Jesus has already made plans to meet up with him again. It's like, I, I, I haven't shown that kind of bearing with the people in my life. But Jesus did. And the reason he did is because he was so gentle and humble with people. Jesus didn't respond to people like they always deserved. And again, you've got to apply this, like Ephesians 4 says, in your local church. Think of the times where people rub you the wrong way, they light your fuse, they poke your buttons, they're difficult, they give you enough reasons to be done with them. Think of times where people in your local church are actually wrong. And they actually did something wrong to you. Still, this is calling you to walk in humility and be gentle with them and bear with them, to be patient with them. So in order to work on these things, again, just keep going back and reflecting on your calling in Christ. When you are rightly thinking on that and how God has not for one second treated you the way you deserve. He's not for one second abandoned you because you deserved it. 
When you consider those things, it helps produce these ideas. And all of this is, in verse 3, your way of being eager to keep the unity and the bond of peace. This is the last way of unity that Paul mentions in verse 3. And Paul's saying that you're eager to do this kind of work. That the idea is you're in a hurry to get this done. As in, like right now, tonight, I'm going to be eager, diligent to pursue the unity and to maintain the unity that's been provided to us in the Spirit. Again, he tells you to maintain it, or some versions say keep it. He does not tell you to create it. Unity is not something that's here because we decided it would be. Unity is here because we're in Christ. We're in the same body. We are indwelt by the same spirit. We're of the same faith. We'll look at that in the next point. That's how the unity was created. God tasked the Christians here to maintain it. In other words, to be lazy in this area is to lose the unity that you're supposed to be maintaining. If you want to lose that kind of unity, then just be prideful, be harsh, be impatient, and just quit on others because you were justified. That's how verse 2 feeds verse 3. Your church's unity does not depend on your agenda. It doesn't depend on social projects that we all agree on. It doesn't require everyone to like the same things as if you have to cheer for the same team, like the same food, wear the same clothes, listen to the same music. None of those are the concern here in Ephesians 4. You can have different genders, nationalities, ages, personalities, styles, and still have thriving unity. That's possible as long as you have humility, gentleness, patience, endurance, and eagerness to maintain it. That's the way of unity. Paul tells you to walk in unity. He tells you the way of unity. And lastly, he tells you the why of unity. And it's here that that Paul gets more into why you are unified. And he doesn't list a, a whole lot of subjective experiences that some have had and some haven't. He lists objective truths that are true of every Christian, no matter how mature or immature you are, no matter how long you've been saved or how short you've been saved. If you're a Christian, all of these are true in verses 4 to 6. Paul begins by saying that there's one body, body referring to the body of Christ, the church. Paul's reminding them that you are unified and you're supposed to walk in unity because you're in the same body of Christ. Again, we experience this church locally. Um, we have local churches that we live in, we, we exist in, that's where we experience it. But anyone who's in Christ is part of this universal, invisible, unassembled church is the idea. All who are in Christ are members of Christ's body, making you members of each other. Disunity makes it seem like you're in a different body. Do you have a different head? Do you have a different arm? Why would my arm fight against my arm? That's what disunity shows. It contradicts the idea of having one body. And Paul says... You have one, or there is one body, just like there's one spirit. Again, when someone's born again, they're born again, placed in the body of Christ, and they receive God's spirit, the same spirit that everyone else in the body of Christ receives. You don't receive part of God's spirit. You don't receive some of God's spirit as if that was even possible. You receive him. You receive God's spirit. And again, that's true for everyone in Christ. Romans 8 says, if you don't have God's spirit, you don't have God. We all have the same spirit because there is one spirit. The Holy Spirit is not for some Christians who are more mature than others. The Holy Spirit is in every single Christian. And that's what produces 
the immediate unity that we're talking about. Paul connects the reality of unity to the idea that there's one body and there's one spirit. That spirit is who is producing this unity. And he goes on to say that it's connected to the one hope that we have from the calling. Again, the, the idea that all Christians have the same hope. Hope is, is, is the idea of a future-facing faith. So there's some things God has promised that he's already done, and we trust that those have happened. There's some things that God has promised that he hasn't done yet, and we trust those are going to happen. When we're talking about the future things that aren't done yet, that's called hope. When we're talking about the things that already have happened, that's just what we normally refer to as faith or trust. They're both dealing with trusting God's promises. Some are in the future. And for a Christian, we all have the same promises coming our way. Biblically, this hope includes a lot of the ideas of being away from sin, both internally and externally. Being with all believers of all time. The older you get, the more people are in heaven that you know and you can't wait to see them again. Most of all, it includes the idea of being with Jesus. That he would actually return and literally come back to earth and we'll be on his side. We'll be with him. These are all the things that we look forward to. These are all the things that give us the same hope. And when you're disunified, when you're not walking in humility and gentleness and so and so, it's like you have two different bodies, you have two different spirits, and do you have two different hopes? Is there something you're waiting on that this person's not? And this is the idea that Paul seems to be getting at. The fact that we have this same hope in Christ is another reason for unity. He adds in verse 5, notice one body, one spirit, one hope. Verse 5, one Lord. Remember this is being written to the Ephesian church. The Ephesian church would have had two lords in their world. Not the Ephesian church, but the Ephesians. It was easy to understand. Everyone's heard Caesar's Lord. Um, being influenced by Rome the way they were. They would have had Caesar as a lord. They understood that. Um, more pressing on them would have been Artemis, um, who would have been their lord. Um, that would have been the deity that was driving them. And that's okay if you have other ones, but this is the ultimate one here, Artemis. And Paul's making it clear, no, there, there's one lord. There's one lord, and his name is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 makes it clear that Jesus alone is the head of all creation, and it's as the head of all creation that he was gifted to the church. And so we have as our head, as our Lord, the head of all creation. All lords are subjected to that lord, not Artemis, not Caesar, but Jesus. And disunity is a fruit of living as if they're different lords. Again, these are reasons, these are realities that lay up or lay behind our, our call to unity that Paul gives us. Unity comes from knowing and reflecting that we all have one Lord. He goes on to say, and one faith, most likely referring not your personal faith, not, not the faith you exercise to be justified, but the faith, the faith that Paul tells Timothy and in later days people will depart from the faith. Jude talks about contending or defending the faith. It's that faith that he's talking about here. It's this body of teaching because you can't love the Lord that you don't listen to. Jesus says this in Luke 6, 46. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Having one Lord who is Jesus means you listen to that one Lord and that produces the faith that we all have in common. 
That is where our unity is found. Our unity is a reality because we have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism in verse 5. When we get to this idea of baptism, I grew up in a church that taught you had to be baptized to be saved. They taught baptismal regeneration. And so I learned early on that people would ask questions here. That, that's not true, by the way. That's not a correct way to take baptism. But I learned early on that people will come to this verse and they go, do you think Paul's talking about spirit baptism or water baptism there? And I would say, yes, I do. Um, I don't think the division we're making is one that they would have made. Now, there is a division to be made. The, the substance is the spirit baptism. But the way we see that is through your water baptism. You don't get the Holy Spirit through water baptism, but we have no, no idea that these realities are, uh, that are invisible are yours until we see it happen in the waters. The sign of the blessing that you have in the Spirit is seen in the waters of baptism. Again, make sure you don't hear me saying you receive any of these blessings in the baptism, but you show them. What the new covenant promises, you receive in Christ and you show in your baptism. The Lord Jesus Christ delegated his authority to his church. And when someone approaches a church and declares, hey, those new covenant blessings, those Christian blessings, those are mine. The church comes alongside that person and says, on behalf of Jesus, yes, they are. That's what happens in baptism. And Paul says that baptism received and given represents a unity that's, uh, that's ruined when you are proud, impatient, harsh, short-fused, and lazy in pursuing unity. When you're baptized, you're saying that you are one with Christ and his people. And his people are saying, you are one with Christ and us. And then we live a disunified life. Again, unity is the reality that we face in the church because we have one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And lastly, Paul says, one God and Father of us all. That's the one that I really want to sink in for you because that's the easiest one for us to understand and illustrate. When you're working on disunity in your church, when you're not pursuing unity, just ask, do we have different gods? Are you serving a different God than me? Is there some reason that we're not unified? Because in Christ, we are all adopted as sons of God. We have God as our father, which means now his people are our siblings. And if you've grown up in any sort of family, I hear the term, you know, dysfunctional family. And it's like, that's a family. That, that is a family. They're dysfunctional. They're full of sinners. That's just the way it is. And we keep making more sinners and they keep dis making families dysfunctional. Just imagine for a second if my oldest son had, and he's nine, imagine if he came home one day and he said, Dad, I've been thinking a lot about this Bible stuff. I think I'm going to go buy me a CSB. I go, get out. We, we can't. We are not in the same family if you're going to have a different Bible translation than me. This is not okay. I use the ESV. I like the LSB. CSB is off the table. Get out of my house. This past summer, we painted our house. And by we, I mean a guy at church I just sat in the thing with while he painted. Anyway, my wife ended up picking a front door color. And just imagine if I come home and I go, what, what possessed you to pick that color? Well, I just really liked it. Well, I don't. You know what? It was a good run. We had 10 years. I'm sorry. I just can't. That, that is too far. And you go, well, I thought you guys were family. That's the point. 
families, they fight, they disagree, but they stick it out because they know that the family connection means we got to work this out. The family connection means I don't have an option to go get a new last name and change my blood with somebody else. We are a family. And when we have a disagreement, we're going to let that family connection be what causes us to fight for unity, not fight each other and split apart. Again, Paul's point here is if God is your father, then these Christians are your family as well, your siblings. Disagreements and disappointments, arguments, they're going to happen, but they shouldn't end your family ties. Families work it out. Families stick it out. Families know that their connections mean it's worth working out. And so again, I want to ask you, do you view the relationships that you have at Flint Hills Bible Church, assuming this is your church, do you view those relationships as real family relationships? Do people see the way that you prioritize and are committed to Flint Hills Bible Church? And do they see that, man, that that person is, is really committed to those people? That person will not let little petty things cause the relationship to dissolve and go away. Is it obvious that you members here at Flint Hills have a unity that comes from your inclusion in the body of Christ, your participation in one spirit, your having one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father? Is it obvious in the way that you're eager to maintain unity by bearing with one another because you're patient with each other due to the fact that you're gentle with each other, which is caused by your humility, which comes from rightly reflecting on your calling. Because that's the way that Paul's arguing here. He wants you to know that you, and again, I mean you, are either working towards unity, laboring and maintaining unity, or you're fighting against it. You're not pursuing holiness, you're being spiritually lazy, you're gossiping, slandering, lying, prideful, quick-tempered, short-fused, to go back to the illustration. You're, you're done, re, refu- you're, you're refusing to put up with anyone else's crud in church. You're treating others differently than how you want God to treat you. Again, I, I want to make it clear, it, it's not, and it, I, I'm not convinced there's been a time, it's not your differences that are going to cause a problem. This unity comes down to how you handle those differences. Because I could find someone that you love more than life itself, and I could find differences you have with them. I could look at your spouse and find ways y'all disagree. I could look at your mama and find ways that you disagree with mama. And it's still mama. Again, take the person you love the most and realize, well, Because I love them that way, we don't let those disagreements and divisions cause us to be disunified. That's the love and commitment you have to God and his people. It was John Flavel who said, At peace with the Father, but at war with his children, it cannot be, may it never be. The idea of Ephesians 4 is, Lord willing, through God's word here, that we would first and foremost just consider the calling, consider God's kindness to us dead sinners who were rebellious to him. Consider that kindness of God to think of how infinitely good God has been to you so that that rightly humbles you so that then your walk is done in a worthy way. You're humble and gentle, patient with your neighbor and not just your generic neighbor, which you should be, but especially your neighbor in the same pew. I know you have chairs here, but the neighbor here at Flint Hills Bible Church. 
That's how the blessings of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 are intended to show up in your life. Hey, you, you know when we read 1, 2, and 3, that's true of me. I love those. Well, then 4, 5, and 6 is the way that you're supposed to be growing those things out. And again, for this tall order, we need grace. And so I want to end our time just as far as the lesson goes by asking the Lord to help us. So please bow your heads with me as I pray. Father, we thank you for these reminders. We keep coming back to the idea that you've just been infinitely good to us. With our limited understanding, with our limited knowledge, we can think of so many ways that we've sinned against you, offended you, We've given you numerous reasons to be done with us, and yet you have committed to loving us. Think about the promise that Jesus gave that anyone who comes to him, he would in no way cast out. Thank you for not only receiving us, but keeping us. Thank you so much for the way that that kind of thinking humbles us. Use the reality of our calling in Christ to Cause us to walk in humility and with gentleness, with patience, that we would bear with each other, that we would be eager to maintain the unity that comes because of the unity of the faith that we have. We thank you for the way that you have been kind to us in Christ, even when we fall short in these areas. So help us to trust Christ alone for forgiveness for these things, but also to trust Christ alone for the power we need to do these things. It's in his name we pray, amen.